You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers and the paths they've taken to help shape our everyday lives. Hello, I'm Rob Webster. I'm an Associate Professor here at the IOE. On this episode, I'm delighted to be talking with Professor Don Wise. Don is Professor of Early Childhood and Primary Education at the IOE and the founding director of the Helen Hamlin Centre for Pedagogy. He is the current president of BIRA, that's the British Educational Research Association. Don's research focuses on the teaching of writing, reading and creativity. He's also been looking at the role of parents as teachers, so he's very much the person to talk to given that many parents and carers have found themselves doing a bit of homeschooling over the last couple of months due to the effects of the coronavirus pandemic on schools. Hello, Dom. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Good to be here. I've been looking forward to talking with you, Dom. As someone who's been homeschooling a lively five-year-old on and off recently, I've already begun to think of this as part interview, part therapy session. (laughs) To start with, I wanted to dig into your CV a little bit. Before coming to the IOE, you were the first director of music making at Churchill College, Cambridge. That sounds intriguing. Can you tell us a bit about that role and how you then came to join us at the IOE? Yeah, I applied for and was appointed as a lecturer at Cambridge. And then the way it works is if you're fortunate, the colleges and come and seek you out. Churchill College came to me and said we were they were interested in me in fact they were interested in creating a new role for the college because they recognized that I brought both music expertise and knowledge I trained at the Royal Academy of Music in London but I also brought education research and knowledge and so they created the director of music making role for me and it involved getting involved practically with all the music in the college at the same time I was what's called a director of studies for education and That's the more traditional support for students who are on education degrees at Cambridge. It was a terrific opportunity and I really enjoyed my time doing that. But as things do, you know, your career moves on and the IOE advertised a post of professor in primary education and I was really interested in it. I knew about the IOE, of course, and so I applied and the rest, as they say, is a bit of history. As I said in my intro, you're the founding director of the Helen Hamlin Centre for Pedagogy at the IOE. This is a relatively new centre, and it's there that you've been looking at the role of parents as educators. So could you tell us a bit about this new centre and then explain what you and your colleagues have been investigating about parents as educators? So our mission in a, in a strap line is to improve children's learning through better pedagogy and People think about pedagogy in all different ways, but for today, I'm going to say teaching and learning. And so we're not just interested in teaching and learning in early years settings and in primary schools. We're also interested in pedagogy in places like museums. So we've got a a brilliant project with London Science Museum at the moment, but we're also really interested in pedagogy and education as it goes on in children's homes and how can we research understand better and support parents, particularly, of course, at a time when so many parents have been called on to educate their children at home because of the pandemic and work with their 
children's teachers in order to do that as well as possible. So the parent side of our work has always been important, but we would say our main expertise in research terms is, of course, the more traditional areas that the IOE and, and other faculties of education have real strength in, you know, teachers, teaching, pedagogy, curriculum. However, the parents' side really, we just felt a kind of need to try and help, to use our expertise. And we had to think, what's the area that we're most likely, based on our expertise, able to help with? And we felt that children in particular, and, you know, children's experiences, their parents trying to help them, and other family members. We thought that's an area to reorient a bit the work of the centre, to focus on it and see what we could do. And so first thing that we wanted to do was actually, like any decent researcher, was do some research, however small, get it off the ground quickly, and that's easy to say and not easy to do, to get some baseline information. And I don't mean baseline in the sense of baseline assessment. That's a whole other matter. (laughs) And so we have brilliant affiliate members of the centre. We have an amazing practitioner advisory board. So we've got access to these head teachers, teachers, other kinds of educators who are on the front line dealing directly with parents. And so we surveyed them with some trepidation thinking, you know, we don't want to waste people's time, but we really wanted to get good quality information in some depth. And we wanted to share that with the House of Commons inquiry into the you know, education in COVID-19 situation. And we're, we're making good progress on that. Excellent. Been um, taking the idea of something you call research close to practice to look at the role of parents as educators in this COVID-19 context. Can you tell us what research close to practice is and then what it means in relation to this homeschooling research? Yeah. So research close to practice, from my point of view, is about researchers who not only understand the methods of research, the theory of research, who know the field of research, but have that ability to translate is one way of thinking about it, but they have that ability to conceive research that involves practitioners, it involves children, it involves parents, it involves teachers. So it's close to the practice of what they're doing. So for parents, their practice is, of course, more spontaneous, perhaps. It's certainly less planned than than school education, but it's still practice. And so in essence, we love projects that require us to use sophisticated research techniques, but dealing with problems identified by people in their everyday lives. So if I give um, a quick example, if you like, this is, I mean, I've already mentioned the survey. So the whole survey was built on how do we get the best evidence we can about what's going on in practice and how can research tools help us understand that better? Let me give another example. So we thought, well, let's think about, we know a reasonable amount about parents and educating. What can we do next? So we move quickly into what we call engagement and impact. And a good research project builds both strong research questions, good methods, and then has a clear idea about engagement. And what came out of our thinking was this Get Children Thinking campaign. It was one of the things that came out. And it's a relatively straightforward thing in some ways. I'm not saying it didn't require hard work 
particularly by Will Ansell and Jana Manukina, two of our, my colleagues in the centre. But in essence, this is about parents talking to their children and asking them kind of quirky questions. They're questions that have come out of philosophy, actually. You can trace them into formal philosophy, you know, but things like, do robots have emotions? And we've had already great feedback from, for example, a teacher in the United States was so excited by this that she's been planning not only oral discussions, but it's gone into children's writing. And she's shown us this through Twitter and we've been able to respond and so on. We've had other parents saying, you know, these questions are just the sort of questions my child will sometimes ask. So it really worked well. So that just gives you a little flavour of some of the ways we've been thinking about parents and education. I really like uh, things like that. Maybe things like that are almost more pertinent now than they've ever been because questions like that, when you ask them to children as a, as a parent or as a teacher, they're the kind of questions which they don't have a specific answer or they might have more than one answer. There's no right and wrong. And I think through that, you can help children handle uncertainty of which there's quite a lot around at the moment and it, obviously it's dialing down it's it's not very high stakes there's something i think very valuable in that when we're we're all kind of searching around adults especially for, for certainties and hard answers at, at this moment yeah sure no i agree i think that's, that's really uh, that's made me think about it again actually in a slightly different way so thank you yeah I think that kind of segues us sort of nicely into the experience that many parents and carers are having at the moment during the lockdown period and as mentioned earlier I've got a five-year-old at home my, my wife and I are sort of day on a day off helping him with his learning at home and if other parents and carers who, who might be listening or anything like me they've probably been questioning whether or not they're doing the right thing am I teaching this like they do at school am I making this topic more confusing for that for handling the doubt and the pressure around homeschooling Absolutely. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. This is confidence is such an important part of pedagogy, whatever context the pedagogy is, whether it's at university student level, primary school level or in the home, as you've described. You know, I've just read today a really interesting research that the Education Endowment Foundation have shared. And it's noting this idea of the gap in attainment that appears to be there and is there, according to research, between different groups of children and families. While I know as a researcher that certain things have been shown, there is a real danger of deficit models of families and children. We know about these deficit models in all sorts of things to do with pedagogy. So my advice is be more confident, frankly. Parents should be more confident in what they've already done with their children and what they therefore can do. The example I use to illustrate is Nearly all children, 99.8%, let's say, that's not a precise statistic, but uh, help their children learn to talk. Generally speaking, it's effortless. And of course, it's a mixture of the human being and the human, the unique human capacity for language. But it's also about the things parents do day in, day out, instinctively helping. Now, learning to talk is no, no straightforward matter it's a very complex thing so my view is if, if parents reflect on what they did that seemed to help their child learning to talk some of those basic principles can be extended into all sorts of learning and so we're going to publish something on this in due course in fact we've arrived at sort of 12 I think it's 12 12 principles that we think if uh, parents adopt these ideas they'll help 
They're underpinned by perhaps the most important principle all is that learning happens through talking. And the more you can talk to your child about all sorts of things for all sorts of different reasons, the better. Yes, there are there are ways that that talk can be more or less educational, but really it's about engagement, enthusiasm in the child's interests, sharing the knowledge that we have as parents, because of course we have our interests and things we accumulate in life that are fascinating to children when we can get them in the right kind of mood and so on. Uh, just to give another example related to this, one of the parents that contacted us as a result of Get Children Thinking campaign that we're doing said they do this thing called mic talks. And every evening, sort of round about bedtime, the mic talks are about a father telling a child for one minute only everything he knows about something. And he said, this is just, I mean, I suppose it's like TED Talks, but but in one minute, you know. And he said, this has just revolutionized the relationship with his child. It wasn't that they weren't getting on or anything. They get on great. But this has just changed the child as an eager listener, as an eager learner. And then they start asking questions. Now, what I would be encouraging as well would be then, then you get the child. Let's call the child uh, Amy. So we do Amy talks as well. And then Amy, the child, shares everything they know about something for a minute. So as I say, we have a draft of 12 principles that we think will help. I won't go into all of them now, but what I will say is they're based on things that they need to be straightforward. They're about things that nearly every parent will be able to do. I'm not saying they wouldn't benefit from support. And I I have to say further down the line, I'm really conscious that lots of people, well, everyone can benefit from advice. And that advice needs to be bespoke to the family concerned. Yes, I know that that's expensive. But if we know that's the case, then we do our best to try and achieve things like that. So it's it's bespoke help for the parents who most need it. So I hope that gives you a sort of sense of the way we're, we're working on this. It's, you said we're a newish centre. We are. We're just over three years old. Due to the partial school shutdown, parents routinely support their children's learning, especially with reading and writing, which your research has focused on a lot, Dom. So let's dig into those things specifically. Let's talk about what happens in schools. So I'm really interested in the work that you've done on how the process of writing is taught. And you've indicated that it's often hampered by teachers not recognising when the youngest children believe they are writing. So could you tell us a bit about that? Is this something to do with the perceptions or even the misperceptions of what counts as writing? Yeah, I, I think the teaching of writing is still a bit less well understood than the teaching of reading. And that's partly because reading seems to capture the imaginations of, you know, not just parents and children, but also researchers worldwide, politicians worldwide. And so my feeling is there's been more research funded on reading than writing. Now, my view of writing is also that it's it's more complex to prescribe the correct approach, if you like, as much as one can, partly because writing includes, of course, the vital aspect of this compositional process. So people, adults, children, if they're writing at some level, they are composing text. 
And what this really interesting research found, this was done with two-year-old children and three-year-old children. And I can imagine some parents listening to this sort of thinking, well, two-year-old children can't write. And in fact, that's precisely what the research found, that not only some parents, but some teachers and educators in the research didn't really regard the children as writing. They would say things like, well, they're developing or they're doing mark making is is a common way we describe young children's writing. But the children just said unequivocally, well, we're writing, aren't we? You know, this is writing. Of course it's writing, you know. And as we know from, I've known this for 20 years, early research in the United States showed that children's attempts at writing, however young, always are done with purpose, meaning to them. And so what the adults need to do is need to assume that is the case and they need to engage with their children. Simple questions, of course, are like, well, tell me what that means or talk to me about what that means. And there are all sorts of more subtle ways of encouraging children to share what they intended or what they meant by it. And this research was one of my doctoral students, Helen Bradford, and she won the United Kingdom Literacy Association Prize for the Best Dissertation that year, uh, rightly so. We since published a paper together on this, this whole thing about how we might help young children with their writing, very young children with their writing. And, and in essence, it begins with knowing and being convinced in your own mind that what the children are doing is purposeful, has meaning, and the problems are with the adults, not the children. Now, of course, I'm not saying that children instantly write standard English texts. Of course, we, we all have to develop. And in fact, the other interesting characteristic of writing is it never stops developing. I suppose you could argue that with reading to some degree, but with writing, it's absolutely the case. So my How Writing Works set of projects look at writing across the life course. And I've found evidence from the world's most eminent writers, from very young children, as I've said, and from classic randomized controlled trial studies of what actually works in classrooms. And let me just sort of round up this little bit about what, what kind of works in terms of writing? Quite a long time ago, there was this brilliant educator called Donald Graves. Sadly, not with us anymore. He was a teacher himself, then a head teacher, and then a teacher trainer, and then a professor. And his PhD, all about writing, he wrote a book that was pretty much as successful as you can write, you know, an education book about writing aimed at teachers, sold right across the world. He got criticized for, frankly, by some researchers saying, well, your research is not really research, it's qualitative, it's kind of small scale, you just went out to look for what you believed anyway. Now, I'm not saying all those criticisms were irrelevant, that there's an interesting debate there. Anyway, that's not for today. 20 years further on, we now have robust evidence that many of the ideas that Donald Gray's proposed are indeed the best ways to teach writing. And it brings me right back to the word you used at the beginning of your question, really, the process of writing. So writing is not just about finished products. It's not just about correct spelling, grammar, as important as those things are in the right, at the right time. It's about a process that you go through. And one other example I'll give is writing is not just about the first draft. It's also about editing. And actually, I think it's editing for older children now. I'm thinking if you take as you go up the primary school, top end of primary school, they need to learn about editing. And so do we all. I mean, I know I've written 34 books and I still 
don't get it right. <laughs> if you see what I mean, I'm still always dissatisfied <laughs> to some degree. And so I'm still learning. I think really interesting what you're what you've been saying about your PhD student found about writing in particular. And it really made me think about my own observations as a parent of my son when he's he's done exactly the same thing, you know, mark making, but you know, no, I'm writing. And they, they do very similar with books as well. They hold up a book and maybe describe what's in the picture. They're not reading the words, but in their mind, what they are doing is reading. They've seen us do it. And, and I suppose there's there's something else in that about connected to teaching, reading and writing that above the process bit, but the actual sort of passion for these kinds of things, which are very difficult to teach. So those early experiences of mark making and engaging with books have a purpose in terms of nurturing a positive relationship with reading and language. And there's something of value in that for teachers and parents too, I'd imagine. So thank you for bringing that fresh to my mind again. Yeah, absolutely right. Motivation, key, isn't it? And parents are the the best people who can um, help motivate their children and engage them. And and in terms of reading, because I've talked more about writing, but let's come to reading. Now, we have sophisticated methods of teaching reading in schools that demand quite a lot of relatively specialised knowledge by teachers. I'm thinking of, for example, what we call phonics teaching. Now, that's not to say, of course, that parents can't do a lot to help overall, but also with elements like, you know, the links between letters and, and the sounds or the phonemes those letters represent. That's only a small but important part. What's more important is that they do things like keep talking to your children about the books they're interested in. Love, enjoy sharing the funny books, the sad books, all different kinds of books, the information books. Provide books which the child can access for fun and for all sorts of reasons, actually. Not least, kind of at this time, I think a lot of people would say reading gets them through you know, the really difficult times in life. The same is also true, of course, of which can be true of children. So that motivation to read, it's key. Uh, Margaret Meek had a brilliant title of a book. It's How Texts Teach What Readers Learn, something similar to that. And, and the point was, it's the choice of text that makes all the difference. And so schools, on the one hand, have tendencies to say, oh, they must be reading scheme books that are decodable. Oh, there must be lots of phonics activities and spelling activities. Well, they're not necessarily the things that most parents like or find easy. And and the risk is that we're promoting things when we could be asking parents to do different sorts of things that may have greater long-term benefit. We could just bring this to a close now, Don, by coming back to parents and what we can be saying to them that's useful, not just now under the sort of lockdown conditions, but going forward as well. And what I'm getting from you is a strong sense that they should perhaps not worry so much, put less emphasis on the technical processes of of writing and, and reading, but be there and really put the work in in terms of building confidence and passion. That's where perhaps they can add the greatest value. Absolutely true. But also they can help with, you know, let's face it, most parents can read and write themselves. Yes, there are some who can't. But, you know, just sorry, just I'm going to quick tangent. Brilliant study in the United States all about families where English was not the first language. The researchers found that even if the parents just 
shared a book with their child in the home language, I think it might have been Spanish, this still had, it had statistically significant benefit for the children's reading in English. So there's plenty that everyone can do. For those parents who are reasonably confident with reading and writing, then it's more a case of not teaching. It's more a case of showing interest, discussing little things like classically looking at, I don't know, road signs, advertising, quirky little things that come up to do with language. So it's like being a language detective. I think I put it like that today. So encourage the language detective in your child, in yourself. And correctness is not really, at the end of the day, the overriding concern. The overriding concern is talk to your child. Just have a genuine sort of disagreement, good-natured disagreement about, you know, well, how do you spell that word? Why is it spelt like that? And why is English, you know what I mean? So I think, yeah, I agree with you. You're absolutely right. Focus on motivation, great books, the excitement of language, the amazing things you can do when you compose using pictures and words together, and maybe computers sometimes, maybe not at other times. When you throw in art into the mix, visual art, you know, paint, they are the big things that, that in the end matter. Marvellous. Dom, it's been really interesting to talk with you and I'm feeling a little bit more relaxed at my own attempts at reception level teaching at home. So thank Anne for joining us on the podcast. That was great. Well, I'll see you next week for your therapy session. <laughs> Brilliant. You can follow Dom on Twitter, Dom underscore Wise, and that's Wise with a Y. You can learn more about Dom's research by clicking through the links in the show notes. As ever, you can find more episodes of this podcast and others from the IOE by searching for IOE Podcast from your preferred provider. And there are other episodes of research for the real world waiting for you, including all of those from our first two seasons, and along with our playlist of music that's been chosen by guests and the podcast team. That's all on our UCL webpage to find both just search research for the real world I'm Rob Webster goodbye thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education University College London 